The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 11, Chapter 1. This is a dense chapter, so this is a longer-than-average summary. In the midst of the vagrant's attack, Esmeralda is awakened. She emerges to discover what seems like a nightmare, or the sorceries of strange beings of the night, and she flies back to her cell in fear. Little by little, as tokens of reality present themselves, this first terror vanishes, and is replaced by another. She fears herself beset not by phantoms, but by human beings there to tear her from her refuge. As she lies prostrate and trembling, two men enter her cell. One is Pierre Gringoire. The other is a mysterious figure veiled in black. Esmeralda asks in a low voice who the strange man is, and Gringoire offers the vague reassurance that he is a friend. Warning that Esmeralda and, more important it seems, Jolly, are to be hanged, Gringoire urges Esmeralda to follow them. She agrees, but the threat of the mob and the silence of their dark companion leave her dizzy with dread. They walk down to the edge of the terrain, where they come to a boat. As their shadowy companion rows them to the middle of the stream, Gringoire declares them saved, kisses Jolly, and congratulates himself on his cunning. Esmeralda watches the stranger with secret dread as he struggles against the angry current, and blithe Gringoire complains of their disagreeable tempers and their refusal to speak. He takes it upon himself to fill the silence with his usual senseless prattle. Suddenly, he asks the man in black whether he noted that poor little devil whose brains your deaf friend was about dashing against the railing of the gallery of kings. The stranger makes no answer, but ceases rowing, droops his head upon his breast, and heaves a convulsive sigh. The din around Notre Dame begins to grow, and pausing to listen, they hear shouts of victory and cries of, The gypsy! The witch! Death to the gypsy! Gringoire, weighing the merits of the gypsy and the goat, and muttering tearfully to himself that he cannot save them both, hugs the goat in his arms, and moves gently away from the gypsy. As the boat reaches the shore, Gringoire flees with the goat, and Esmeralda is left alone with the stranger. He takes her by the arm in his cold, strong hand, and strides rapidly toward the Place de Greve. Looking in every direction, and seeing not a single passer, she feels herself at the mercy of an irresistible power, and suffers him to drag her along. Arriving at the gallows, the man finally stops, turns, and lifts the cowl that had obscured his face. She recognizes the priest. He tells her that fate has delivered them together. Her life is in his hands, and his soul rests in hers. He reminds her that Parliament has ordered her to the scaffold, and the approaching mob calls for her death. He says that he can save her wholly, and pointing to the gibbet, says coldly, Choose between us. She throws her arms around the gibbet. Claude Frollo then makes a plaintive, gentle declaration of the love that burns in his soul, 
lamenting the freak of fate that she, who is all gentleness and tenderness, is unkind to him alone. He buries his face in his hands, and for the first time she sees him weep. He pleads with her to have pity upon him, to understand that he loves her so much that he has deserted himself, abandoned all virtue, and caused his soul to be damned. More horrible still, far more horrible, he has watched the brother he brought up, loved and idolized, dashed against the stones of the temple, because of her. This is the reason for the gruesomeness of Jeanne's death in the prior chapter. It is a glimpse of hell, damnation brought to earth. Claude Frollo is made to watch his brother, to whom he had devoted his whole soul, destroyed before his own eyes as a consequence of his own wickedness. He begs Esmeralda for one word of pardon, one word of kindness, one single word. Throwing himself on his knees, he waits expectantly for her reply. She says, You are an assassin. Catching her in his arms and laughing an abominable laugh, he says that if she will not have him for her slave, she will have him for her master. His eyes flash with rage and desire, and he covers her with frantic kisses. She struggles, shrieks, and cries that she belongs only to Phoebus. He replies, then die. He drags Esmeralda across the pavement, calling to the old recluse to avenge herself. He thrusts the gypsy into the recluse's arms, which have appeared through the loophole, and says to hold the girl tight, that she might see her hanged. Panting with terror, Esmeralda tries to escape her grip, but the old woman's fingers are fastened around her like a vice. She sinks back, exhausted, and thoughts of the beauty of life and a fear of death overtake her. She asks feebly why the old woman hates her, and when the recluse answers again that gypsies stole her child, she answers innocently, Alas, I was probably not even born then. Esmeralda hears the tramp of approaching horsemen and pleads with the recluse to have pity and let her go. The old recluse tells her to die unless she can restore her child, unless she knows where her little girl is, unless she can find the mate to her baby's precious little shoe. Shuddering, the gypsy says, Show me that shoe. My God! My God! And she produces a tiny shoe, precisely like the other, from the silk bag around her neck. Attached to it is the verse, When the mate to this you find, thy mother is not far behind. Beaming with divine rapture, the old woman exclaims, My daughter! And she replies, Mother! Esmeralda puts her arm through the window, and the old recluse floods it with the tears of fourteen years of grief. Suddenly, she shakes the bars that separate them, and when they won't budge, hurls a stone at them, destroying the old cross that had barricaded her window. 
She then seizes her daughter by the waist and drags her into the cell. Singing, shouting, talking, laughing, she makes a thousand extravagant speeches, marveling that she has found her daughter and declaring that nothing can kill one if she has not died of joy. Hearing the clash of arms and the galloping feet of horses, Esmeralda throws herself into her mother's arms in agony. The recluse then recalls that a cavalcade is on their way to take her daughter to the gibbet. She lays Esmeralda in the corner of a cell and makes every effort to conceal her, even loosening her black hair and spreading it over her white gown. When the officers and the hangman Tristan Lermite arrive and ask where the witch has gone, the old woman does her best to assume an indifferent air and lie. After a lengthy interrogation, during which she repeatedly contradicts herself, a gray-haired sergeant steps forward and says that though she may be mad, she is also telling the truth. For it is well known that she despises gypsies, and this one in particular. They go off to resume their search, and, her heart swelling, the old woman says in a low voice, Saved. Moments later, Esmeralda hears outside the cell the voice of her beloved captain, and she flies to the window, crying, Phoebus! Help! My Phoebus! Phoebus is already gone, though we the readers know it would have mattered little if he were there. Tristan hears her, returns with his men, and orders them to break their way into the cell and seize her. The mother transforms into a wild beast, hurling stones at the men and endeavoring to barricade the opening with her body, to no avail. As the soldiers advance upon the girl, the old woman tells them in a voice suppliant and full of pathos her whole story, ending with the words, Oh, you are very kind, sergeants. I love you all. You will not take my dear little one from me. It's impossible, isn't it? Utterly impossible. My child! My child! With a tear in his tigerish eye, the hangman still pulls the girl from the cell, dragging the mother, whose hands are knotted around the girl's waist, behind her. After crossing the square and arriving at the gibbet, the hangman unclasps the mother's arms from his prisoner takes the girl over his shoulder, and ascends the ladder. The mother throws herself on the hangman and bites him. He thrusts her violently away, and she falls heavily to the pavement and dies. The second of my posts was a connection to Last of the Mohicans. This will contain spoilers. This emotional marathon of a chapter takes the reader on a journey over every peak and through every valley of human experience, from clamoring lynch mobs to monstrous ultimatums to ineffably blissful reunions to unimaginably painful separations to unjust and horrific deaths. Of the countless poignant and gut-wrenching scenes, a few caught my particular attention including this one. 
choose between us, he said coldly. She tore herself from his grasp and fell at the foot of the gibbet, throwing her arms about that dismal support. Then she half turned her lovely head and looked at the priest over her shoulder. She seemed a holy virgin at the foot of the cross. The priest remained motionless, his finger still raised to the gallows, his gesture unchanged as if he were a statue. At last the gypsy said, It is less horrible to me than you are. It is such a powerful scene. A young, innocent, beautiful girl making a silent and profound gesture of defiance in the face of a cruel ultimatum. As so often happens, it reminded me of something. In Last of the Mohicans, two sisters, daughters of an English captain, are taken prisoner by the Huron during the French and Indian War. The brave Uncas, a young Mohican who has fallen in love with Alice, the younger of the sisters, risks his life against all odds to try and kill her captors, and is stabbed and thrown off the face of the cliff. In one of the most moving scenes of cinema I know, this beautiful young girl looks her captors serenely in the eye as she slowly inches backward until she reaches the cliff's edge and then lets herself fall. Courage is not always grand, loud, and violent. Sometimes it takes the form of a gentle, wordless expression on the face of a young girl. I just watched that scene again, after searching for it so I could link it to the Facebook post, and I can hardly take it. The third of my posts to the Facebook group was called Rembrandt's Blended Light and Shade. As Gringoire, Esmeralda, and the mysterious stranger make their way down to the boat, Hugo describes the surrounding scene. Quote, in all directions, so much of Paris as could be seen shimmered in blended light and shade. Rembrandt has just such background in some of his pictures. Unquote. I wanted to see what he meant, so I've created a gallery for you in the Facebook group. And the last of my posts to the Facebook group was, Do You Forgive Hugo? In his introduction, Robert Louis Stevenson has this to say of Notre Dame. Quote, One other fault before we pass on. In spite of the horror and misery that pervade all of his later work, there is in it much less of actual melodrama than here. And rarely, I should say never, that sort of brutality, that useless, insufferable violence to the feelings, which is the last distinction between melodrama and true tragedy. Now, in Notre Dame, the whole story of Esmeralda's passion for the worthless archer is unpleasant enough. But when she betrays herself in her last hiding place, herself and her wretched mother, by calling out to this sordid hero who has long since forgotten her, well, that is just one of those things that readers will not forgive. They do not like it, and they are quite right. Life is hard enough for poor mortals, 
without having it indefinitely embittered for them by bad art. Unquote. Now, no one loves Hugo more than I, and his work as a whole exists on so high a scale that I would never deign to call any discrete element of it bad art. But, in a very limited sense, I have to agree. Going back to an earlier point, I do not believe this novel has an integrated theme. And if that is true, the suffering is without moral purpose. That makes it, in my mind, essentially different from 93. Here we still have Hugo's virtuosic ability to create a conflict of epic intensity, to tell a tale that wrings your heart, to create scenes that are wildly fantastic and yet still palpably real. When he takes all that and puts it in the service of a somber and reverent theme, there is simply nothing better. Okay, get ready for the last chapter, 